Welcome to Mac and Cheese Music Podcast with your host, Brian DeHart. Thank you, Bruno. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Does anybody really care? What's up with the attitude, man? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You are. You're the throat of mac and cheese music. That's better. Ha! We're in 20 countries. How about that? That'll do, donkey. This is why we're in 20 countries. Mac and Cheese Podcast number 33 with Chris Hogan. Seattle, Washington has a cornucopia of super talented individuals. Not only is Chris an amazing guitar player... He is an electronic musician. He is both a live audio engineer and studio engineer. Chris has run sound for over 6,000 acts here in Seattle, Washington. The music on today's podcast are tracks that Chris has specifically selected for this podcast. Break out pen and paper and take notes. The amount of information that Chris is disseminating is astounding. Well, Bruno, what do you gotta say? Some of us here ain't that smart. Hey, man, I, ju- I just wanted to say thanks. Nice plug on Facebook, dude. Thank you very much. No problem, man. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, I uh, had a t- chance to take a look at Steve Smith's Soundcraft, and I yeah. was trying to envision exactly how you modified that board. Could- oh, oh, I mean, like, well, what what Soundcraft does he have? Oh, uh, he, ha- he has a ghost. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a, I don't have a ghost. I have a signature twenty-two. Oh, okay. So it's it's kind of like um, they they kind of built a lot of the mods into it, you know. I mean, I, we had, we had a, a Soundcraft Series six hundred at the Vera project, and that was actually my old board back in the Doc Maynard days, you know. And then oh, so were you running sound at Doc Maynard's? Or you playing there? Uh, I ran sound there. I ran sound everywhere. <laughs> I know, man. You're a, you're a force about town. There was a Mikey was saying that uh, you'd been you spent a lot of t- was it is it been not not at Roomba Notes but the place over in uh, the uh, over in the Rainier area. Well, yeah, no, I was at Roomba Notes. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I mean that was recent, and um, you know, I mean, I I kind of got, but I I mean, I've I've probably mixed. I mean, as a live sound engineer. Uh, I mean, I've probably mixed about 6,000 bands. (laughs) That's that's probably the truth, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing it since the 90s, you know. So I was the house engineer at the the OK Hotel back in the day. Wow. Wow. Do a lot of big shows, you know. um, Yeah, you know, and... Mixing as a live sound engineer everywhere, you know, which is a little bit different than, um, you know, being a recording engineer. So yeah, it, it is. I've do, I've done some live sound myself, and there's still there's still some basic concepts that are kind of, kind of the same. But I think you know, as a live sound engineer, as opposed to a recording engineer, you it's so much more free to be able to pan. Well, well, in a recording, whereas in live, I think there's more of a challenge in it. I think a lot of it depends upon your space, and I've only I've only done it in small spaces. But I, you know, I I from what I understand, I've never done a big show at all. But uh, it's you've got some real challenges trying to get trying to get instrument separation with um, by by just running filters, EQ filters. Well, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you're hard panning stuff in a live situation, you know, it, you, you lose a lot of power. You know, that's, 
you know, that's sort of the trade-off. If you're trying to, if you're trying to get, you know, the volume up to a certain level, you know, or gets things so they can be heard, you know, you start doing a lot of hard panning, you know, you know, you're cutting your, basically cutting it in half. Interesting. That's very, very cool. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and start the podcast. Hey, this is Brian of Mac and Cheese. Super privileged today. Super privileged. Chris Hogan. Uh, Chris is not only is he a, a guitar player, you actually did a competition with, uh, with, a, is it the Guitar Institute? You were involved with that? Um, yeah, it was like the, it was like this GIT, um, Bender, Ingve Malmsteen. <laughs> I, you know, so I, I, I won in the Pacific Northwest, you know, so it was about 18 or 19. You know, back in the day, so that, that must have been heady for you, very heady. Oh yeah, you know, I got a big head about it, and then I entered a guitar competition the next year and got my ass kicked by a two-fingered country guitarist. <laughs> so, oh, oh, really? Wow. Oh, you know, so yeah, you know, so that's that's good. You know, you know, the universe kind of keeps you humble. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he was an interesting guy. You know, he, you know, he only had two fingers. You know, he, he worked as a lineman on the on the railroad and you know electrocuting himself. And melted two of his fingers, and ever since then, you know, God spoke through him, or something. You know, you can't compete with a guy like that. <laughs> Did you say God spoke through him? Yeah, you know, you know, after he got electrocuted. Oh man. Uh, you know, so I like to think he's out there riding the rails somewhere. You know, you know the mysterious two-fingered guitarist. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, I can't even imagine it. Uh, when, did he did he ended up hitting a ground somewhere and, and uh, taking the entire sixty thousand volts or something like yeah. that? <laughs> so uh, why don't you tell the uh, listening audience about yourself? Wow. Yeah, how'd you get how how did you get involved in all of this? Oh, geez, you know, well, I mean, I've been playing music since I was a kid, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, just that was what I, what I was into, you know. As a kid, you know, I'd be listening to rock albums and jumping around with a tennis racket pretending to be Ace Freely or something. And I guess it kind of escalated from there. So, you know, I think by the time I was about 11, you know, I, you know, I got a guitar and nylon string and uh you know and then i started taking classical lessons for the first year and then i didn't like it because it didn't sound like frank zapp or jeff back you know? <laughs> yeah that's what i was playing you know and uh so you know early on i was that's the kind of stuff i was into you know and my uncle he had a whole bunch of albums you know frank zappa and Jimi hendrix and jeff beck and i would just sit there for hours listening to that stuff when i was a kid and so yeah that's i, I just started playing guitar and i started getting pretty good by the time I was about 15 or 16 just kind of went from there well I would think with the having a foundation foundation in classical guitar that was probably jump started you yeah it it helped a bit you know like when I wanted to go back and read music because you know about a year later you know I, I I got a copy of the Frank Zappa guitar book that Steve I had transcribed and you know and there's all these notes in there you know and there's this thing in there that you know, it says, oh, this is not sight reading 101. I'm like, well, I'll show them. You know? <laughs> so, so that's kind of, and so I would, I would sit there and like write 
on each note, I would like write the the string and the fret on there, you know, trying to figure out how to read the notes. It's probably not the easiest way to learn how to read music. But I, it has to be an accurate way. I mean, that's breaking it down. Yeah, you know, and so I guess that's kind of how I how I how I started. But yeah, and then you know, the, yeah. So you know, the the classical stuff came in handy. And then and then a few years later, you know, when I was in high school, I had a really good really good music teacher, Ted Rosenberg, and this was at Inglemore High School. You know, and he was a Juilliard trained classical pianist and really talented. And so he started turning me on. Um, you know, Bach and Paganini, Franz Liszt and stuff like that. And, you know, and he was a really, you know, big influence on me. And, and that, and, and so, and, and he was my choir teacher, you know, and so I, I really learned how to, how to sight read and sight sing. It's, it's more important to actually learn how to sight sing than just sight read. I mean, on an instrument, you, know, you have to, you have to internalize it, trains your ear and everything. And so that, that was a, a good thing and that got me back into classical guitar again so then you know i started studying you know like via lobos and bach and stuff like that and trying to figure out all the paganini caprices on the guitar and um <laughs> one of the quotes that paganini has is that uh and i and i'm just this is this is not not in accurate context but one of the things he said was that i'm not a very good looking guy but when i play guitar i can pick up the women <laughs> how was that that did that work pretty well for you did you have the same results <laughs> no, i mean I'm, I'm 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 kind of a geek you know <laughs> No. Yeah. 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 I mean, Pogany was cool. Yeah. I mean, he actually he, he wrote for guitar a little bit, you know, although there was a contemporary of his, a guy named Mauro Giuliani, and they were close friends. And actually, in some ways, you know, if you want to really understand some of Paganini's techniques on the guitar, you know, you might be better served actually looking at, at Giuliani or Mauro Giuliani. Anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I, I got into the classical stuff again and or I started to like my teacher, you know, he, he you know, he says, well, you know, he's also helped me out. So he, he said, well, you know, there's somebody I want you to meet. He sent me down to like Meany Hall at the UW, you know, to go meet Julian Bream, who's like one of the great classical guitarists. And I was just blown away. I was like, oh, wow, that's what you can, do. you know, all of a sudden, all, all the, all the shredder, you know, guitar stuff in the eighties that I was, you know, learning, you know, kind of paled in comparison. Yeah. And so I, I got into that, you know, and I, I think when I got out of high school, you know, I went to Shoreline for a bit and did that for two years and and uh, studied in took like two years of theory and did the audio engineering program there. And then I and then I dropped out of school for a while and was a, a bohemian type in the '90s, like everybody else. And and I got bored with that and I said, well, you know, maybe I should go back to school. And so kind of worked on, on trying to get into the UW and then I got into the, the classical guitar department there and the, and the jazz program there. And so I spent a number of time there. And so and that, that took a while. It sounds like it sounds like it, but you have an incredible breadth of ex- expertise behind you, which is really respectable. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was good, you know. Um, a lot of people think when you go to college, it's really a bunch of academic studies and there's music theory. And that's a lot of times what you get when you take like a, your first a two-year theory course in community college. But usually by the time you get, get into programs like that, you know, as a, you know, it's all about performance. So that's a, most of what I did when I got there. I got all my academic stuff out of the way. And so by the time I got there, I was just, it was just nothing 
a lot of it was just performance, you know. I was having to learn like, you know, 40 tunes a week, playing in all kinds of ensembles and jazz orchestras and classical guitar ensembles and study a lot of, and I spent a lot of time in the ethnomusicology department, which is in the sub, sub, sub basement um, of, the, of the music building there. And it's, it's kind of like the Department of Alchemy. It's like there's all these mysterious things that go on down there. <laughs> so, I, you know, I tried to round that out, you know, with, you know, uh, you know studying ethnomusicology. So, you know, I studied African guitar with Kanimo and uh, ritual music of Tibet, and which would get really weird, you know. Yeah, uh, talk about that a little bit. So, uh, are you talking about tonally? It would be it was strange, or well, yeah, it's very because they have a very different concept of time. You know, um, it's you know, it's it's like it's logarithmic. You know, like if you were to if you're kind of like if you were to take a, a a ball and bounce it on on, on the floor, you know, right? Now that's that's kind of like they have a different concept of time. Um, you know, it's not about periodic cycles and it's the same with pitch, you know, they analyze pitch, you know, it's not like cyclical waveforms, you know, it's constantly shifting like that. And, you know, because I guess the idea is that, you know, no enlightened being would listen to something so crass as, you know, these crude, you know, discrete pitches, and, you know, and, you know, and cyclical rhythms like that, you know, it's like the whole idea is you're trying to break out of the cycle of samsara or something. So it would be it would be really weird, you know. You know, the teacher would come in today, class. We're going to do the ritual invocation of the Black Mahakala. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey man, I used to know that band. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was it was cool, you know, and and uh, you know, I I studied I studied the oud. Uh, yeah, what? For, I'm ver- really vague on what the oud is. What exactly is that? The precursor of the guitar. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it basically, you know, the lute, you know, was was brought into Europe, you know, with the Moors, and well, and actually, actually, it was where the oud was was brought into Spain um, by it was a guy named Zigrab, who was a musician. You know, I think he originated in the in the, in the courts in Baghdad, and then was in the caliphate, and I think in what was it Cordoba? No, it wasn't Andalusia. Yeah, but that was actually he formed, formed, started the first music school, you know, in Europe. 
Yeah. You know, they're pretty. In, those those territory anywhere. That, that that Islam culture was pretty enlightened for its time. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, at the time, yeah, for sure. You know, um, you know, and Andalusia definitely. You know, I mean, you know, not just music. You know, architecture, math, astronomy. You know. All of you know all of our cathedrals in Europe and stuff. You know all the builders would you know they'd all go to they'd all go to Spain to study. You know, learn their craft. Yeah, that's right. It's a good a good piece of history. Quarterly or are four strings on an oud or how many strings? Four, sometimes five. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think at some point they added a fifth string. And, you know, and there's like double courses and it's fretless. The original one was fretless. And then it became, and when it, and then it became modified and turned into the, the lute, and they would just tie frets <clears throat> onto the fretboard. Tie them. Wow. Yeah, they still do, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's an interesting instrument. So, I, and, yeah, and there's, and there's different variations on, you know, there's Persian lutes and, you know, they're a little slimmer, I think. It's, it's, it's an interesting instrument, you know, and it's really just trying to get the microtones down. So that's, that's most of what I spent doing with, with Munir, you know. I'd ask him about, you know, the scale theory and all this stuff. And he's like, oh, you don't need to know that. He probably figured I already knew a whole bunch of theory anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we would just sit down with charts, you know, and scores and he would just hear, play this, you know and have to play through it and then he would just sit there and go nope that's the wrong note no that's the wrong pitch every time every time i would i didn't get it right he would just point it out so and it's it's a weird thing you know you have to kind of hear it um but in, you notice it, it's you know when you get it right because the notes sound fat all of a sudden they bloom and they i'm a little bigger the harmonics are there when you get it right yeah when you get it right um you know sometimes you know there's things that are a little quarter tone flat or you know quarter tone sharp or something and and with Arabic tunings, you know, it's a little bit different. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's like almost like a third of a, of a tone or something. Wow, that's really interesting. So it, sub Indian subcontinent, isn't the, aren't the scales based in quarter tones? No, I mean. No. Okay. Their tuning system is, their temperament system is, I think, based on uh, 22 notes, 21 or 22 notes. They're called shrutis. And... Uh, <clears throat> But actually, their their musical language, you know, I mean, it's you know, sa re ga ma pa da ni. It's like do re mi fa so la ti do. Um, so seven notes, just like in, in Western music. But the, uh, the different ragas, you know, have different tunings, and that's how they kind of look at it. So it's it's more, you know, they they have like you know, I think twenty two notes per octave, their temperament system. But their actual their the way they organize music, and you know, there's you know, there's you know, twelve notes and, and seven letter names still so it's it's really not that different than western music in that sense i'm still trying to wrap my head around 22 notes to a scale <laughs> a scale you know i mean you know like i mean their scales you know like their basic scale systems you know have have seven notes so it's just you know some notes are a little you know a little sharp some notes aren't then you know you start getting into you know middle eastern music or um, you know, and, and, and different regions, you know, have, have, they all have their different, you know, tuning system. So like, you know, Syrian musicians have a different tuning system than say, you know, Iranian musicians or Persian musicians have different slight variations than Arabic musicians, just, you know, even in different regions. So it's, it's really quite interesting. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm pretty fascinated. I could understand why the cultures might look with some disdain to Western music 
because of how basic our scale structure is in comparison. Well, they have a lot more scales, you know, like our, in Western music, you know, we predominantly use, you know, like the major harmonic and melodic minor scales, right? Most of them are based off that. And, you know, and then jazz, you know, you've got, you know, you're diminished in your whole tones and, you know, and your blues and things like that. But in, um, you know, Indian music, well, it depends on which region. So if you're talking about South Indian classical music, they use the Malacarta system. And they have 72 scales. And that's their, their basic seven-note scales. And how that's created is, you know, they just... It, it's, it's pretty simple to understand, you know. You have your root and your octave and your fifth are in violet, right? And so mm -hmm. it's pairs of tetrachords, groups of four notes. And uh, so just by... So if you keep the, the root and, and the fifth and the octave the same, and then you just chromatically alter... So between the root and the fifth, or the first four notes, you know, so you've got that root. So your second, your third, and your fourth, you can chromatically alter, right? I'm following you. Right? Yep. And then, and then and that's that's the lower tetrachord, and then, and then the upper tetrachord, right? So your fifth, sixth, and seventh and eighth degrees, right? That's the upper tetrachord. And so the, um, the sixth and seventh can be chromatically altered. You get it? So it's really, you know, so... And, and that's that's kind of how you do it. And so it's just systematically figuring out every possible chromatic alteration just between pairs of tetrachords. So the first 36 scales are all the ones that have a, a perfect fourth. And the second group of 36 all have a sharp four. Wow. There's always a perfect fifth. There's no flat five in Indian music. Really? Very, very interesting. Mediopolis and Musica. <laughs> Are you able to play play that chordal structure with Western instruments, or is yeah, it, it, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, you've got all these different ragas, right? And so, you know, they, they, some, you know, really, they're just like chords in a way. You know, it's just it's like a it's like a chord scale. It's a harmonic. It has a you know, it has a it's like a tonal field, right? It's got a sound in the same way that you want to understand what does mixolydian sound like it's got a vibe right i mean it's not just a scale you know it also has kind of a you know it has harmonic implications you know it sounds oh it's okay it's a dominant seventh chord it's kind of the same thing with you know with indian music um but because they you know they generally play over over a drone you know it's kind of organized a little bit differently you know so they're not really necessarily you know playing you know chord sequences but there's a lot of harmony that's implied in the melodies it's more of a melodic type of art form really being expressive with the melodic art form <laughs> i uh, i knew i was going to learn something today and I, I was absolutely right i wanted to touch bases with you with your recordings with is it's it's saka right pj saka yeah yeah tell tell us about that oh well um well kevin saka he's he's a drummer um, you know, he plays with uh, Pendulum and Destroyed these days. You know, we, we started off kind of in the early days. Um, we met at the OK Hotel. It's going back. Going back, yeah. He had a band called 94th Street, and uh, they used to play there. And, and we that's where I met him and, and Jeremy Lightfoot and those guys. And, and we found out, oh, wait, oh, oh, you grew up in Bothell? Oh, I grew up in Bothell, too. Oh, OK, cool, you know. So we got to be friends and started working on music together, and that would have been the early 2000s. I, I was playing in a band called Two Loons for Tea at the time. This had been, yeah, about 2003, somewhere in there. And I was, I think we were playing some after-hours party or something like that, record label party, and 
and then Kevin and PK and, and Reggie Watts came in and had some crazy jam session and played for about 10 hours. And that was kind of how that started. I kind of got this crazy idea. Hey, let's do a record, you know? And I was, I think, flying down to L.A. I was supposed to work for the National Guitar Workshop. I was, like, doing sound for Steve Vai or something. And, you know, and Kevin's like, oh, my God, you know, we should we should put something out on, on Steve's label. And, and he was working on an album with Andy Summers at the time, um, which never got released. And it was supposed to come out on Steve's label, too. And, so I went down to L.A. and I, I talked to Steve about it, but I didn't really have much in the way of demos at the time. It was, it was crappy stuff, um, you know. So I said, well, we got to get this right. I mean, we just had a basic demo, and that was uh, for Solaris. And then we finished that up. And by the time we finished everything up, you know, um, there's no money in, um, you know, in the music business anymore. You know, there's no, right. no recording contracts. So that... So it, that that didn't quite work out, you know, the way we'd hoped it would. Just kind of kept going on with that, and and so I kind of finished that up, and we sort of released some of that stuff. And it was, you know, really progressive kind of instrumental type stuff, and kind of combining like you know jazz and electronic music, but you know trying to play it all on on real instruments. I mean, I, I did combine some of it, you know, with like synth bass and stuff like that. And so the first album was just like me and Kevin. I think we recorded a lot of that stuff at a, what's now a vast studios and put it out, you know, tried putting it out there for a bit, you know, and it got a little bit of attention and then, you know, and then Kevin, you know, he was, he was also working on other stuff too, you know, and, you know, and then you got the gig with, you know, like American Idol and playing with Blake Lewis and, and then, oh, and then he started playing with Ari Socket Dory. Yeah. You know, with Joe Dory and, and Ari and, that sort of thing and uh and then i think and then we got back together probably about 2010 and kind of did this live at the sea monster album and and it took a really different approach for that one and that stuff is um you know i was like hey let's let's just shut off the computers you know and just play and kind of take more of a, a rock type approach i mean although it's improvised music it's it's very it's very much improvised but we it's it's less jazz oriented. It's more of a, a kind of a rock musical language, and and combined with you know like sort of like thinking about things in you know South Indian classical forms. You know like really long extended types of modal improvisations, and so you know we kind of did that, and uh, you know and then and then right after the after that gig, he got he got the gig with Pendulum, and so he was off to London. So <clears throat> there you have it. Yeah, and you know, and playing at Glastonbury and making a big, you know, and so yeah, um, and then you know we've done a few things since then. I, I did a, I, I, I did kind of an EDM track uh, for him. And it was a vocalist from Switzerland called La Medusa. So I, I did this crazy kind of wall of guitar remix, and uh, you know. Because I think at the time, you know, he wanted to focus more on, you know, pop music and EDM and, and go in that direction. And, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, maybe I'll try that. <laughs> so, yeah, t tell me about that. I, I, I have a, a lot of really strong opinions about EDM. But yeah. somebody with your education and your talents, how did you approach that, that medium? Oh. Did, 
how did you approach that? I'm sure it wasn't over, overly simplified. What EDM? Well, yeah. I've really gotten so much. I mean, I did that one, I, I did that one track and I, and I, I, I do experiment with electronic music and stuff like that. You know, I've got Ableton, you know, I, I play around with all this stuff. I guess originally, you know, when I was playing with Kevin and, and, oh, and, and by the way, him and Jeremy Lightfoot, they also had this band called Siamese, which is really important, you know, because they were like kind of originally starting like as a duo, just doing drum and bass, right? But playing it on bass and drums, you know, on real instruments. And, you know, and, and that's kind of when I started playing with Kevin, you know, that was kind of the idea. It's like, well, you know, let's like take these drum and bass beats and stuff and, and I guess how I approached it was I kind of thought of it as, you know, it's, it's like jazz, right? And jazz is based on like the dance music of, of the day. You know, it's, it's also mm-hmm. popular music. You know, you go look at the birth of bebop, you know, and Minton's Playhouse and the Harlem Renaissance and all that stuff. And, you know, all these guys like, you know, Charlie Christian and Dizzy Gillespie, they were, they were playing the pop music of the time, you know, right? They're just jamming on it. You know, and using that as a basis for improvisation. And so, you know, I think at the time, you know, I was just thinking, well, okay, well, we're just using the pop music of the time as a, as a basis for improvisation. There's no reason why it can't be jazz, right? You know, it's, you know, jazz isn't just about the jazz tradition. It's also what you bring into it. I mean, I've also firmly believed that. I mean, you, you can take a lot of things from the jazz tradition, but you also have to give something to it, you know. And a lot of that's it's the stuff that you love. You know, it's your influences. It's whatever. That's what, that's what you bring to it, you know. And... I think that was kind of, you know, at least philosophically, the, the approach I, I took with a lot of stuff. Um, at least on the early stuff. Specific, right? You know, started getting kind of code, codified into into genres. But when we first started doing this stuff, there was people were a lot more open to playing all this crazy experimental stuff. I mean, at the time, I mean, I, I was kind of drawn to it because it's like, where else can you? What other genres can you play? Like, you know, twenty minute instrumental pieces, you know? But you can do that at the time. You could do that in the world of electronic music. <laughs> so. And the audiences actually, you know, were pretty receptive, you know, and to that sort of thing, you know, really open-minded and very progressive. So it it wasn't, it, it actually, you know, it, it, it felt welcoming. So I, I didn't really have any problems with that. And it was kind of interesting, you know, like when I'd be playing with Monster Planet, which is another band leader, and we'd go play big electronic music festivals. I'd be the only guitar player there. I'm like, wow. You know? To set you guys apart. Yeah. It's, yeah, for sure. 
So I was, I was kind of just trying to find, I guess, you know, find a little niche in there. But I, I think at a certain point, you know, like it, it, it with the EDM thing, it, it started becoming really, you know, once once it became really popular, there was a lot of money coming. It's one of the few, you know, genres in music that, you know, that was actually profitable. And so, of course, you know, once once the record labels and everybody starts figuring that out, they're like, oh, yeah. And so it started becoming a lot more, you know, commercialized and mainstream. And and then you started to have these, like, these really specific genres, you know, like, okay, we have trap in there. You know, I can't even keep track of all, all the all the genres, you know, and the names they have. And it's, yeah, so it just, it, it started, you know, kind of sounding a lot more, like, homogenized. I, I, I did, I did, like, you know, I did that EDM track. And I, I said, yeah, let's see if I can put a big wall of guitars on that electronic adrenaline box guitars or something and it was kind of a cool thing plus i wanted to kind of prove to myself you know okay yeah i can write pop tunes you know so so i started doing so after kevin went off and joined pendulum i, I went and did this album with nicole Halleen. and then the whole focus on that stuff was you know just getting away from playing 20 minute guitar solos. so i didn't play any guitar solos at all you know you just focused on writing and arrangements pretty much yeah and production yeah yeah hooks and chord progressions and 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 just focusing on, on a really kind of like a very stripped down thing i mean it's hard music to play but it's um but everything's just kind of essential and um there's nothing superfluous about any of the notes and and a lot and but it was also a challenge because i was trying to play everything you know like finger style with that type of music so kind of like taking you know like that whole kind of chord melody approach to uh like jazz guitarists you know like charlie hunter where you or lenny bro you know where you're playing bass lines and playing and comping on the chords at the same time and so i said well you know what if we tried doing this you know instead of you know playing with like these sort of swung type you know bebop jazz type two five one type progressions you know doing more rock types of progressions and riffs you know but i'd, I'd be playing like the bass line a lot of times with my thumb and then playing all these riffs and stuff at the same time but it was really stripped down and essential like and so it was kind of challenging to play but it was it was good stuff though because and i, I really enjoyed making making those albums because it was like really the first time i was kind of able to you know actually get in the studio and and really get an album sounding right and actually do writing sessions beforehand and rehearse and you know and really get the songs tight and then just go in the studio and track everything we, we didn't use a click track for anything so, really yeah wow yeah and uh and that was and that was with jazz turnbow on drums yeah and so we and we we just kind of did it like kind of more of an old school kind of analog style of recording and you know we would just play together in a room and we just lay down the basic tracks we lay down down a bed track which is kind of how how like hendrix used to do it with eddie kramer you know old school musicians you know would do it that way you know you you know you'd run through a bunch of different takes until you found you found the take that had the right pocket and the right feel dude that's that's the way i prefer to still record i just would rather no, i just good. rather bang it out until it's right man yeah, you know, and, and you know we just, we just play we just go through and just play the song straight through and you know we do a bunch of different takes and say okay yeah that's okay i think that's a good that's a good bed track and then from there you can build on it and so yeah it was really fun you know and we and at that point you know we kind of got into uh we recorded all that stuff on a harrison console 
That's very cool. Where, at what recording studio did you do that at? We did that at Bird's Nest Studios. And yeah, those guys are great. I really like Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was down at the substation doing some stuff there too. You know, mixing bands um, for a while there. I mean, the live stuff, not in the studio. But I mean, I did, you know, but I did record that album at the old Bird Nest Studio, like because they have they have the new one down at the substation. But I'm, you know, but that, I, I just remember the Harrison Ford. I don't know if they're doing other stuff now, but I was blown away. Uh, that's an old MR4. Right? Uh, when I read about it, I, as from I understand, there was only, and I may have my may have my stats wrong, but there were only fifteen hundred of those things made. Really? Yeah, and so they've got you know, I mean, it's obviously vintage. Mm. Uh, I and I remember the playbacks I was hearing. And it was I thought the board sounded incredible. Yeah, no, it's a, they're 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 real fat and punchy. And I mean, well, they, or it's it's kind of a it's more the EQs on them they're they're fat, but they're it's like they're really they're not like SSL EQs. They're they have a different thing going on. You know, the Q gets narrower. <laughs> you know, or tapers. You know, as you as you turn it up and down. And uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a cool sounding board. You know, and and I remember you know Frank Zappa. You know he. He would use an old Harrison console and then use an SSL master bus compressor. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a cool sound. And um, and so later on, and when, so when we mixed all that stuff down, we did all the tracking of the bird nest and then mixed it down on an SSL G-series. Um, I think we did some sessions at Bob Lang and Synergy Studios for that stuff. So, yeah. And so it was kind of a good combination. I, li- I like the combination of that. And so my current little home studio setup, that's kind of what I, I tried to kind of recreate, you know. So I, I, I use Harrison Mixbus, which is the software program. It's like basically a virtual Harrison console. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, there, there was a bunch of stuff that we talked about when we, when we hooked up at Starbucks a, couple, a yeah. few weeks ago. Talk about your, your home setup. I want to hear about it. Oh, it's really simple. I mean, it's really simple. I just wanted something that I could mix on at home, and and I, I wanted analog summing, because that's how we we did those recordings, you know. And I like the sound of it, you know. And you know, I like this, that combination of the Harrison with with the SSL. Well, I can't really afford an SSL, so you know, um, so I got a, a Soundcraft Signature Twenty Two, and basically, you know, the Signature Twenty Two is uh, it's kind of like. You know, it's got the Ghost mic pre's in it, and and the Sapphire EQs, and it's got really great analog summing and panning characteristics, and you know, and high headroom, same same kind of headroom that you would have on an SSL. So you know, it goes up to you know, it's got about 22 dB, and that's what I like about it. And you know, you could go get an old Soundcraft Ghost and spend about eight or nine thousand dollars, you know, hot rotting it, or you could go for under a thousand dollars, you know, you can go get a Soundcraft Signature Twenty Two, and it, you know, it's it's got some compromises. It's it was kind of a cool trick, <laughs> and it sort of worked. So that's what I do now is I just do everything in Harrison. I'll do stuff in, you know, I'll work in Ableton, or but you know, if I'm doing my mix downs, a lot of times I do them in in Harrison Mix Bus now. I mean, I have to kind of go back and I'm sort of in the process of going back and hopefully remixing everything all my old stuff so a lot of the stuff you're going to hear today is some of its old stuff so it hasn't been remixed yet you got a big catalog of stuff to remix lord god how many years yeah because i'm kind of like 
you know, I was going through all this stuff and going, oh God, why did I mix it this way? <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's, there's some live stuff, you know, like the, the live stuff I did with, with Sokka, that was, stu- that was really interesting because, or the live at the Sea Monster stuff, because um, we just recorded that with a pair of stereo tube microphones. Really? And, and uh, what, I, I like to geek out. Do you remember the brand that you used? It, it was, they were crappy. I mean, I think Kevin got some Behringer mics that they gave him. And I think that's what we did it with. And I think originally it was done for a radio broadcast. We, uh, yeah, just set them up on either side of the drum kit. And uh, so there's way too much cymbals in that, on those mics. Oh, yeah, that must have been a challenge to yeah, try to keep that yeah. out of there. It's st- yeah, it's still a challenge. And there's some stuff on the second set where it's like, oh, man, I can hear that. It's, you know, they're clipping. And they're getting grindy and, and hot, you know. Yeah, um, which kind of gives it a kind of an interesting quality, you know. But I was like, ah, there's a really good take with some really great solos. But I'm like, oh man, I don't know. There's some good stuff in there, though. Pulled up some Monster Planet jams. Monster Planet is a different project that I'm involved with. Yeah, what's the what's the history on Monster Planet? Monster Planet kind of that started what about 2011, maybe. Um, that was at the Can Can, and that was we we're all we we're all kind of working at the Can Can, which is sort of like a burlesque absinthe bar. Yeah, was it um, Levi? Didn't Levi own that for a while? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. He was, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so Will, he was one of the guys working there, Will Mappa, and he kind of, him and some other folks, you know, started, a, you know, started Monster Planet and Andy Reichel uh, or Jellisol, um was one of those other people and Seth and Chris Haynes and, um, and some other folks and Leo Mayberry, who's a video guy, Killing Frenzy. And I'd, I'd worked with Leo on some other stuff prior to that. And this other project I had at some point in the Leo kind of came in and started doing the live visual stuff. And so the idea behind Monster Planet basically is that it's kind of a collective of musicians or electronic musicians. And, you know, we get together every month, 
some, you know, and rotate, rotating cast of people, you know, like I'm not really, I, I don't run it. It's run by some secretive corporation that runs all the goings on a monster planet anyway. And nobody knows who they are. <laughs> um, yeah. That, well, there's that conspiracy. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, you know, weird avant-garde experiments. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it kind of started off that way and, and we would just get together and improvise live film scores to, um, that's mon- really cool montages of like weirdo sci-fi horror psychotronic types of movies. And, you know, and, and Leo would remix all this stuff and do all these crazy visual stuff with it. Awesome. And- yeah, and, and we just kind of get together, and everybody would just kind of bring in all their gear and and uh, and and just sort of improvise. And we you know improvise for about four hours, you know, a night. We do that about once a month, you know. I mean, I wasn't on. I mean, I wasn't on all the shows. I mean, some of them, but you know, sort of a regular, recurring character in, in the Monster Planet world. You know, sort of a you know mercenary space cadet guitar person, and. Uh, and yeah, and kind of it kind of built from there, you know. And but it was it was a lot of fun because, you know, they would they would archive everything. So and all the shows were multi-track recorded. So it was kind of like this idea of you know just building up this huge you know sample library basically. And it's it's a huge sample library, <laughs> you know, or archive of stuff, you know. So they, Monster Planet could probably release albums till the till the cows come home. So are those stuff. samples available to the to the public, or are you marketing no, no. those? No, okay. No, it's uh, you know, it's 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 stuff. You know, it's it's you know, if you're if you're in Monster Planet, you have access to the art. <laughs> Got it. Uh, yeah, basically, you know, different folks. You know, we can. You know, if you play on a show, you can go back and you know remix and resample stuff and use it for whatever. It's pretty cool, and so that was kind of one of the original ideas, and and it kind of built from there, you know. And you know, and they started playing, you know, like larger electronic music festivals, and you know, we started playing some pretty big places, you know, like Aesthetic Evolution and stuff like that, and, you know, and, and quite a few other ones. And then other in other cities, you know, other 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 groups started trying to do the same thing, you know, starting kind of doing their own sort of collective thing. But it was fun, you know, and it was, you know, it'd be unpredictable. Sometimes it'd be really good. Sometimes, you know, it'd be, oh my God. But that was <laughs> what was cool about it, you know, it was like, and, and they're all, you know, and they're always bringing other different people in. It was kind of cool to see like, you know, electronic musicians and, you know, starting to think about, oh yeah, like improvisation and, and, you know, and they start geeking out about like music theory and, you know, and actually trying to understand music, you know, and perform, you know, rather than just tweaking knobs, you know. So it was, I, so when I, when I see that, you know, when I see people that are trying to progress and do something interesting, you know, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I can, you know, I'm, I'm behind that. So it, it was, it was really cool, fun experience. And, and so I did a lot of shows with them and then, and that it kind of evolved out of monster or, you know, from the whole thing about doing the, the live shows. And then in recent years, you know, they've kind of started a podcast and started doing like episodes, like whole seasons, you know, of shows. That's yeah. pretty interesting. What's the name of the podcast? Monster Planet TV. Monster Planet. There you go. If I'd Monster listen. <laughs> Planet TV. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, they've been, it's, you know, they've been 
going going strong with it, you know. And, and most of this is, you know, this is Andy Reichel and Seth and, and Chris Haynes and, and those guys. They're like the, the masterminds. And, um, you know, and Andy I love playing with. You know, he's he's, he's does a lot of really cool stuff, you know. He's really improved as a drummer. And, and he's a great keyboardist, you know. And he's got all these crazy, you know, analog modular synthesis stuff. You know, he's got like a mort in his living room. A, a mort. What is yeah. a mort? That, that huge. I think it's a mort. Maybe it's mort. I don't know. It, he's got like, he's got one of those big, huge moogs. Right. Like the one that like Keith Emerson used to use. Right. Yeah. Actually, I was, uh, got, what, is, what is her name? Demi De to me, Delord out of LA, she has a track where she's got one of the uh, pictures of one of those. Yeah. And I'm telling you, man, that uh, it reminds me of back in the seventies when I visited the music department at, department at the university of Oregon. And they basically, the entire synthesizer was basically a wall <laughs> with a lot of patch chords going into it, right? And uh, and and the way you program the sounds is you change patch chords <laughs> as opposed to knobs. You oh, have yeah. to you'd have to know your your ice your oscillator routing pretty darn well in order yeah. to pull that off. So yeah, there's there's some there's some serious high tech stuff going on with Monster Planet, you know, like these shows, you know, it's the whole, you know, the the it's it's a little bit it's a little strange for the audience because you've got like you know about seven or eight people, you know, all kind of with their backs, the audience just surround sitting at a table filled with equipment, you know, making weird sounds, and you know, there's a lot of modular synthesis and you know combined with Ableton and all kinds of triggering devices and synthesizers and looping devices and filters and a lot of crazy stuff so you know i learned a lot about that just from all those shows you know and also learned a lot about doing like you know visual stuff too and so yeah it was it's, it's been fun and i and i i really like playing with andy a lot you know i like where he's coming from aesthetically you know he's a huge fan of like 70s prog rock and jazz fusion you know, so we kind of have that in common, and and he he has stuff out on on his own on, under the moniker Gelsol, and he, he has an album out called Horsehead Bookends. That's really cool, really cool stuff. Yeah, I, I like playing with him a lot. I like the name of that album, Horsehead Bookends, named after his bookcase. Yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. Nicole Helene, let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, Nicole was the vocalist in Trick Deck originally. And then um, 
and that and that was I think with the Sokka and Jeremy Life, but so she was she was one of the vocalists in that band, and then later on she started a project or yeah Nicole Halim in the projects, and that and then with Jazz Turnbow from Ben's Jazz Kit on drums, and, uh, and so they did an album, the first album, and then they kind of brought me in, and uh, and then that's sort of we kind of did the second album, and then uh, and then she also had a band called Thrive Alike. So they're kind of more, a little more electronic sounding, and uh, so she was doing that, and she's a, she's a good vocalist, you know. And I, I was really stoked to do that stuff. So it was it was a fun project, you know. Um, just trying to write pop tunes like that, but you know, strip it down, you know. But still kind of rock, and you know, with a female vocalist, and do something a little less experimental and a little more mainstream, and uh, you know, just focus on the songwriting and try and do something that hopefully adds some quality to it. I think right now I, I don't know what's going on with that band. Hopefully we'll we can do some more stuff in, in the future. So, but it, yeah, it was, that was a fun project, and that that was all the stuff we did at at um, um, at, at the Bird's Nest. So that's how <laughs> again, what a great facility. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but it was the the old Bird Nest Studios. So yeah, that, that yeah. That's was, when I, that's when I saw the Harrison was uh, before the remodel. Yeah, when they when they went, this is before they moved down to the substation, and they were down at, uh, or they were at that. I think they're under a dry cleaning place or something like that, up on Crown Hill. And but th- those were good sounding rooms, you know. Um, I mean the, you know, I mean the, I'm I'm sure the new the the rooms at the substation are much bigger. Much um, bigger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but a lot. I think a lot, a lot more. They're a lot more reflective, you know, and. I like I like the rooms of the old bird nest. Yeah, I, I, we got some good recordings out of those. I mean, I think we did some sessions at the Art Institute as well. So. That must have been pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it was you know it was fun. You know, I mean, we just go in and track it. You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that that SSL there is okay. I don't know why, but that one always sounded kind of thin to me. Like I'd always have to beef it up with something, throw some extra mic pre's on it or something. But yeah, the. So the yeah the the album with Nicole that was that was that was a good album <laughs> you know hopefully somebody will hear it. <laughs> well, here's a chance off of this uh, podcast that'd be great. Yeah, you know I mean yeah it's it's, it's kind of cool stuff you know she's a great vocalist. You know?
as an engineer, did you did you mention that you had done some touring with Steve Vai? No, 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 no. I mean, I just I I, I was working for the National Guitar Workshop, and I, I they flew me down there to there was because I think Steve Vai was playing there, so and they had me come down and and do the sound for all that stuff. So so that was you know I think back in the late '90s, early 2000s. So I worked for the National Guitar Workshop. So it was really cool. I got to. You know, I got to travel around every summer and work with all these like amazing guitar players, and you know, hang out and drink and talk shop. Well, actually, one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> Both the I do like to drink a little bit of alcohol, and I do like to geek out on. Uh, love to love to talk about this stuff. This is just totally awesome. Six thousand artists. You say you've probably engineered for. Uh, Maybe. I tried. I tried adding it all up. Yeah, um, a long time ago. <laughs> you, trying, to, trying to guesstimate it. I'm like, you know, it's probably, uh, you know, because I started in the '90s. So right, and four or five nights a week that adds up fast. Two or three bands a night. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, so and I was I was doing that a lot. So you know, sometimes I feel like. You know, as a live sound engineer, I'm pretty good. You know, it, it took me a long time to figure out my recording game. You know, I feel good about it. It does. Yeah. Um, you know, but it took a long time to get there. So I'd, I'd say mostly, you know, some of the stuff I'm playing, you know, you, you might hear that, you know, there's an evolutionary process going here. You know, from when I first started. Completely I, understood. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and even though I knew how to do live sound, it's like, you know, the studio thing is very different, you know. It is very different. So yeah. do you have some great stories from uh, maybe some of the shows that you did? Great stories? Yeah. Um, stuff that went south on you where it's just crazy stuff that happened? Oh, my God. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. Um, let's see. What? Well, there's a few stories that I can't tell, but of course there are stories you can't tell. I understand that. A lot of stories. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Um, something that went really south. <laughs> All right. Well, CD Littlefield. <laughs> oh, I I love Chris. He's great. Uh, yeah, but I remember back in the bo. I mean, back in the hungry young poets days, and this was. Uh, and I was I was I was mixing at the Swan Cafe, I think. Oh wow! They were down, I think, at the old timers or someplace down the street, and they had to, and they needed a PA brought in. So I had my roommate bringing in a PA for them, right? And uh, you know, and unfortunately, I had I had to mix the show at the same time. So I, I told my roommate because he had PA gear, and I said, "Well, okay, you know, I'll hook you up. You know, you, you know, I'll, I'll come in and help you set everything up. You know, and, and get it all going. And then you run it." And uh, and he he was like, you know, kind of like this ex bandito deadhead guy and uh you know biker dude and um and uh who could consume mass amounts of whatever <laughs> <laughs> didn't really matter huh <laughs> uh, anybody who could consume consumable things <laughs> like that anyway so i went you know i got everything set up everything was good i, I come back and uh you know and he he and he'd been drinking and he'd gone back in the power amps and rebridged all the power amps and um and everything's blowing up and and he's up on stage and he's grabbing the mic from Chris Littlefield and he's all 
trying to get on the mic and sing and I'm like oh, <laughs> so bad you know that was like yeah. and I, I still have to apologize to Stevie for for that incident <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's water I'm sure Chris has forgiven you fully yeah you know, <laughs> you know. so um, you know yeah there there have been some there have been some crazy shows, you know. Um, what is he tr- tr- doing rebridging the ants? He's trying to get more power out of it or something? Or what? what is I don't know, man. You he know, was just drunk. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, what did you do? You know, ended up being made, you know, one of his amps went thermal. I'm like, what did you do that for? Um, I think that that's probably the 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 worst power amps go thermal it's usually a bad thing you know and i think that's that's about the only i think that might be the only time that's ever happened to me yeah that was yeah that was a long time ago um yeah because yeah if your power amps go out it's it's bad i mean i don't know i mean there, there haven't been things that have gone too drastically so i'm trying to think of of something you know but Usually not too bad. I mean, I think maybe one of my early days at the Swan, like some other sound guy came in and, and reset the reverb, you know, send. And I went and mixed the next band, and I didn't notice that the reverb send was all the way up. And so, and back in those days, you had to mix, the mix position was behind the stage and up the stairs. You know, and by the time you get down to the front, you know, it's like there's just nothing but reverb everywhere. And, you know, and the audience is going, kill the sound man, kill the sound man. <laughs> the chant. Yeah. Those are the early days, you know, you learn. It's always, you know, disastrous. You know, there's, I mean, you know, you pay your dues, you know, hopefully you survive. You know, I guess I, I wouldn't have been doing it this long if I hadn't messed up too bad that's right so how about some of your favorite uh mixing boards across the city uh what consoles do i like uh well um let's see favorite mixing consoles well everybody's going digital now you know so i i I cut my teeth on live sound with an analog board and i've just frankly i loved it I, i i loved it yeah, I love mixing analog. I mean, there's. Um, having said that, you know, I mean, the you know the Midas M32s are, you know, they're they're pretty good. You know, there's one down at the Vera Project. You know, and um, you know, I was, I was teaching audio live sound engineering down there. So, and yeah, there's a nice, really nice Midas M32 down there. It's kind of a cool console. So I had to get up to speed on on all the digital consoles a few years ago. Kind of made that switch eventually. I was I was kind of like an analog holdout, you know. Um, but then you know people start looking at you like, oh my god, you know, yeah, this guy's old and obsolete. Well, you know what though, I love I love the harmonic distortion and the headroom, and and and, and with clean digital sound, it takes it seems to take a lot more oomph to punch you in the face. But with a- analog, yeah. You just you get you get you just get the 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 impact of the actual physical contact with the the analog sound waves. It's just you know, it's a different ball game. Yeah, I mean you tend to lose. You know, I've I've noticed. Yeah, you, you, it yeah it doesn't quite 
cut through, you know, loud volumes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like, you know, when you start digitizing things, you know, there's like aliasing, you know, it's like, you know, you're just cutting everything up into little slices and grids and then putting it back together and something's kind of missing somewhere along the way, you know, um, no matter how good it is, you know, right. Um, you know, I mean, or how high the quality is that, I mean, and it's, it's getting close to the point, you know, where it's, it's you know, it's, it's hard to tell the difference, but, um, you know, even with like, you know, these D D class amps, you know, they've got all the new digital amps now. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'd much prefer, you know, like a really powerful, you know, old school crown or a crest or something, you know, there you go. They weigh a ton. So everybody's going to the D class amps now and powered mains because it's, it, you know, it weighs a lot less, you know, and it consumes a lot less power. It's funny that you should mention Crest because several years ago, uh, Terry Gottlieb had a, a couple of Crest amplifiers laying around that I picked up from him that he had rebuilt. They were all completely refurbished and, and, and took and used those to, to actually replace a couple of failed Mackies. This was a while ago. Yeah, the, the fans would go out on the Mackies, you know. Uh, on those Mackie power apps. A lot of times you'd have to take a a straw from the bar, you know, and stick it in the back. (laughs) MacGyver the Mackie. That's awesome. (laughs) I mean, although their monitors are, you know, their studio monitors aren't bad, actually. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, not a big fan of their consoles though. I don't like Mackie boards. Uh, I've, I've actually got an, old old pair of powered monitors mackies that were actually built in italy that's how far back those guys go and they sound great i'm happy with them oh, oh, oh stage monitors yeah, yeah they're powered stage monitors yeah oh, yeah i know the yeah i know that i think that was uh yeah i know the yeah i know the, the ones that are made in italy are good those are good speakers yeah, they really are. And and the price was right. I paid three hundred bucks for the pair. I was I was dancing wow. on the way out. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm trying to think, yeah, what consoles do I like? Um I mean Terry had a lot of he always had like soundcraft ports, you know, on most of his systems. So those were always fun to mix on. Um, you know, the one at Nectar that he had a nice soundcraft there. Of course they have an they have an M thirty two now. Um, you know, so a lot of that stuff's been swapped out with digital boards. But um, although, and as far as digital boards, I actually like the Soundcraft, the Soundcraft, the Soundcraft digital boards. They sound pretty good. The mic pre's on them are good. Um, but analog stuff, yeah. There's Soundcrafts I liked a lot. Um, you know, for the most part, Alan. You know, Alan Heath. You know, I think we had an Alan Heath at the OK Hotel. That was pretty cool. Nice rack. I, I like mixing on that board a lot, actually, because um, we had we had some good stuff in the rack. I had some Lexicon PCM forty twos, like old school, you know, and some Clark Technique EQs, and uh, you know, rack full of DBX, you know, compressors and limiters and gates and stuff. Yeah, although I like drummer gates, I like the the drummer quad gates. Those are I'm not familiar with drummer. Yeah, drum. Yeah, like the, yeah, I like their gates. So they make good stuff, and they make some really nice master bass compressors. You know, you don't get a chance to use too much drama stuff live anymore. But now they've got models of it all, you know, on the digital boards. So I guess you can use them now. That has to be interesting, moving from hardware to 
uh, hardware effects processors to digital processors in and plugins uh, running a live situation. I mean, well, you know, because it adds latency, so you have to, you know, you have to account for that. Well, I mean, if it's if you're just using a regular plugin that's stock in there, the latency is kind of already accounted for. But you want to start adding stuff, or if you know you you actually use the physical sends and returns on a digital board, then that's going to add a bit of latency. But you can also make latency work for you in, in a live sound situation, you know, so you can tune the the backline just by you know delaying things. You know, you can actually get the phase of the of the physical back line to match the speakers things like that you know? that's an interesting process yeah you know so you know you just have to think oh, okay it's like what you know one foot per millisecond or 1.1 feet or maybe it's one foot it's 1.1 milliseconds something like that you know you just you kind of have to calculate it out and so you try to time align you know some what some people do is they'll try to time align the you know the back lines the output yeah instruments on stage you know to the mains so you know you can kind of make latency work for you i mean generally speaking you know in a live sound situation you're not going to notice more than five milliseconds of latency anyway so what would you would you be delaying uh, delaying the main output so they fall into sync with the back line or how how does that work yeah you would yeah yeah because i mean you know the 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 front line is going to be you know, it's, it's closer to the audience, so it matches like the, the back line. You know, it, but it, it it it's a little weird, you know, like for vocalists, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you know, as long as they've got in ear monitors, they should be okay. <laughs> you know, but um, you know, but it's weird because you know, it's almost like you're virtually moving the speakers behind the mic <laughs> right know? yeah yeah well, i mean it's you know it, it's the, it, that can get a little bit weird you know but generally you know so I, I wouldn't do that with the vocalist but you know you can do it with the back line sort of um but then again it's, it's and then within your monitors it's a little bit tricky too sometimes you know because you know you know if there's late you know with the drummer you know if they're hearing latency in their monitor oh I've been in that situation before, and that is not fun. Yeah. That is, in fact, that's, uh, I was in a situation one time, I was using di uh, digital drums, and I had the floor wedges were set precisely, so I had complete cancellation going on. I could not hear. I'd hit hit that blasted drums and there would be nothing there was nothing no sound whatsoever the bass player looks at me and he yells what's wrong <laughs> it's like dude i can't hear myself <laughs> i'm just i'm done with electronic drums i'm not a, i'm not a big fan of them anymore yeah. it was i was so enamored by them when they first came out and put so much money into it and uh I should have just should have just dropped that dough on a good sonar kit. <laughs> you know, that's. <laughs> I, I I have a little I have a little V kit here that I'm I'm trying to teach myself how to play drums. Right? Yeah. Like I actually called up Kevin Saka and asked him for some drum lessons. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah so you know, just like oh, how do I hold the sticks? You know. So um, you know, because I just wanted to try and you know learn something during the pandemic. Yeah. And then I I started. I also went and took a course at. Stanford on remote concert technology, like learning how to how to do you know remote remote jamming online. 
So are you using Jam Kazam? Um, that's one of the ones I was using, yeah. I'm getting ready to step through that portal. And uh, I'm, I'm all set up. The, the people that I'm working with, I've got to get them set up so we can get that going. But how is the latency factor on that? Is it, is it workable? Yeah, it's kind of workable. I mean, if you can, I mean for me, I, I started noticing once you get around 10 to 11 milliseconds, that's when I started feeling the lag. Um, I'm know, super sensitive. Yeah, in, ter in terms of personal latency. Um, you know, but if, once it gets down around, you know, if you can get around seven milliseconds, it, it's not really that noticeable. And I think with, you know, with Jam Kazam, I could get it down to around, I could get it down to about seven. Well, that sounds, that sounds workable. Now, were you running a, a direct Ethernet cable into your, uh, your router or were you able to avoid that? No, no, you have you have to use Ethernet. There's not really any way around that until they come up with five G. Because I mean, it's yeah. I mean, Wi-Fi is forget it. You know, it's too slow. But you have you have to use Ethernet. And you know, and I and I got a, a gigabit cable plan. You know, so I've got plenty of bandwidth. And uh, you know, the main thing is just making sure that your um, you know your your audio drivers, you know, whatever your interface is, you know, is capable of doing uh, you know low latency. And then there's other things you can do to get rid of latency as well you know, and, you know <laughs> so you kind of go and you know make sure to shut off any extraneous programs that you're not using go in and disable like your screensaver and stuff like that you know because it eats up a lot of it'll, it'll eat up some, some of your computing power well those are good those are good tricks thank you for helping me on that because i'll take definitely take your advice yeah yeah, and, and actually, you know, the, the screensaver thing, I, I learned that the hard way, you know, when I was recording Joe's stuff and I have to shut off the screensaver. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll it'll affect your recording, you know. Recording cut out for one second, you know. The screensaver popped on. I was like, oh, my God. You know, unfortunately, I was able to, you know, I was able to save it, you know. And, you know, I only had to edit out, like, one chorus, you know, one eight-bar section out of the whole show. You were able to edit out the eight bars, and I'm sure those guys didn't. There was no flaw within the groove. No, no. Yeah, it was really easy. You know, super, super easy edit. So, and that's so. Yeah, I guess that's the latest thing I've been I've been working on is Joe's thing, um, or the latest mix I've been doing. And so I'm I'm happy with that. I'm getting pretty happy with that. 
Um, and are you doing all that virtually? Oh, no. I mean, remotely online? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, well, okay. Oh, I was talking about the McTuff album. Okay, I'll get to yeah. that. Um, no, but with, I, yeah, but I was experimenting with Joe, like with Jam Kazam. You know, we were kind of experimenting with a lot of that stuff. So we get together and jam during the pandemic, you know, because we're all isolated at home. So, you know, usually about 12 to 4 in the morning, you know, get together and jam and experiment with all this stuff. So, you know, it was fun. And so that was, you know, kind of working out the bugs with that. And, uh, and Monster Planet was doing some stuff, too, with that. You know, they were using uh, Ninjam, um, mainly because Andy's out in, out in Monroe or Duval or someplace like that, and has, he, he doesn't, have very good, doesn't have very good cable out there. So, so they would have to use Ninjam, and Ninjam is a little bit different because there's like an, it's kind of like an eight-bar delay. Everything's in sync, so what you're hearing is like eight bars ago. You know, so it's 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 good for like electronic music, you know, you know, and if you're and for Monster Planet, it kind of works. You know, they're really abstract anyway. Um, but you know, if you're like trying to play together as a band, that would that'd be very difficult. Um, but and and so for something like Ninja, you don't necessarily need to have Ethernet. But if you're doing if you're trying to do it in real time, you have to, yeah. Yeah, we're trying to implement rehearsals. And I and I've, you know, I've got the X32 and the solution has been for me to just get my just get my little focus right 2i2, run it in the jam kazam, and then I just do the uh, just do the output uh, stereo output on the back of the uh, X32. And so I've got the the whole mix right here, right into two tracks. Works pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was using the Soundcraft, you know. I mean the you know, the the latency's not too bad. I can get it. You know, I think round trip I've got, you know, I mean it's, you know, I can get it pretty low. So um yeah, the main thing is you want to get it if you can try to get it, at, you know, to 20 if you, well, you have to get your total round trip latency has to be under 30 milliseconds. That's the main thing with remote jamming. Mhm. Mm Anything over thirty milliseconds, it's impossible. And that's, I'm talking about the whole, the whole session. Right, right the entire loop. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, personal latency. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I kind of want to, you know, it's, I try to get it down around six or seven milliseconds. But I've been able to get actually, you know, better latency than that on other programs like Soundjack. That's one that's I was kind of beta testing. Um, that's out of Germany. And this guy, Alex Corot, Professor Alex Corot, he's designing that one. And uh, so I was, I was testing that out a lot. And in some ways, I mean, it, it works. It, it's got much, it's faster, has lower latency, and sound quality is a little bit better than Jam Kazam. Um, but it doesn't have as many features. You know, Jam Kazam has a lot of features, so that's, I think, why Joe likes using it. A lot of people like using it, you know. You know, like you can record things while you're playing them. And you know has VST implementation and use VST plugins as well, and you know, and and then also you know send it out to YouTube or Twitch or whatever you know, for for streaming.
one of the things that I was Joe and I were experimenting with is I, I tried to figure it out how to integrate integrate it with say OBS, you know, or Open Broadcast Studios, which I'm sure you're probably using for your podcast. Or, oh no, I'm not. I'm not doing. Everything's recorded. Oh, I'm, okay. do, I'm doing no streaming. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, I, I would use um, OBS to uh, basically kind of try to green screen musicians into a virtual space. You know, so I'd, I'd do like screen captures off a of Jam Kazam or whatever. You know, you take the video, the video screen of everybody playing, and then and then I do like a, a window capture and bring that into open broadcast or open broadcast studios which is a um, streaming uh, platform and then and then I would um, mat them in you know using green screen so you know Joe and I, I, I so I kind of showed Joe how to do that and so we did some ex- so he tried it on his end and we did some experiments with that you know and it actually worked you know so and so it actually looks like we're sort of playing in the same room it's a little cheesy but yeah <laughs> you know but I, then I started kind of going in and say, well, maybe I'll try designing virtual stages. So I started doing all these graphic backdrops and things like that for OBS. <laughs> That's very creative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, why not? You know, I, why not? You know, I, I have a feeling that might be the way of the future. Uh, it's, it's going to definitely be a part of the future. That's for sure. I don't know if it's going to be the way, but it's going to definitely be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think with the, you know, with the pandemic and everything. And I mean, who knows? Yeah. I mean, hopefully live music will come back. It looks like, you know, you know, they're planning to start doing shows again. Um, yeah. We're booking up with outdoor stuff. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. So let's talk about McTuff. McTuff. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's the, the clock out lounge live at the clock out lounge. So this is McTuff with horns. And Joe asked me to come in and, and record that for him. And so I went down to the clock out lounge and I, just brought my laptop and a couple of microphones and uh, plugged in the back of the M32. And then went and set up some mics and mostly used the house mics, you know, but I brought in a pair of Slade ML2s, um, which are virtual modeling mics. Yeah. And I used those for the overheads and because uh, they didn't have any overhead mics. And that worked pretty good. And then... And then, and I recorded it all into Harrison Mix Bus, and then, and then brought it home and loaded up in the Mix Bus and started using the, the Slate virtual mic models, and basically replaced all the mics, you know, even and, and which was great, you know. So all of a sudden, I, I took the clubs, you know, SM57s and you know beater mics and turned them into ten thousand dollar Neumann U87s. <laughs> So you could use the Slate software as a post? Yeah, I do. Oh, wow. You're not supposed to. I mean, you're supposed to use a flat microphone. And that's right. What, that's what the Slate ML2s are. And that's what they tell you to do. But I don't always do what I'm told, you know. So I said, why not try it? And it actually kind of worked. You know, you know, you find something that, you know, has something similar that, that matches, you know, what you're what you're going for i mean it might not be perfect it might not be a perfect replica of a u47 or a u67 but it's pretty close a lot of times you know it sounds it sounds good and that's what matters you know and it, it really actually added a lot to the recordings you know and so i was able to get a lot of my sounds that way 
rather than just sit there and try and EQ things and and stuff. Um, it's that good. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it adds up, you know. It's one of those things that might not notice it on a single track, but across a whole mix, it does add up, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's I use I use my uh, Empirical Labs Fatso Junior as a preamp a lot of times, and it's it's one of those things where you, you use it use it in post, use it pre, and it, it just it just adds up. It adds up. It's easy just to get some pretty fat. I've got some old recordings that were done straight out of the box that are really fat doing that. It's uh yeah, the you know, the mic modeling thing, it's it's come a long ways. And I, I was kind of skeptical at first, you know, because I've you know, as a guitar player, I'm you know, I'm not really you know, I, I understand the limitations, you know, of modeling. Um but you know, the technology's come a long ways. It's it's pretty amazing what you can do now with it. And so, yeah, I, I would just, uh, and it was great because, you know, I could double up on microphones. It's like on the kick drum, you know? So, you know, I'd have like a, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd throw in like, you know, like a, a D12, you know, or inside the shell and then double it up with a U47 on the outside of the shell or U67, you know, or Neumann, large diaphragm, and, you know, and then double it up. And then, and I can change the, you know, and I can change the, um, you know, the distance so I can, you know, reduce the proximity effect and things like that. Let's <laughs> wow. you know, blend them together, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I've started out my digital recording career with a, with Cakewalk, which I didn't get. And then I picked up a, a, a VS 1824 Roland and uh -huh. it had, it had plugins or, uh, uh, that were mic modeling, uh, uh, plugins with the same kind of options you were talking about, uh, and it was it. They really sucked. <laughs> it wasn't very good at all. But it sounds like the the Slate software is uh, relatively affordable and very effective. Well, yeah, you know, you because you know you can buy the mics for about one hundred and twenty five bucks. Well, that's list price, you know. And once you get once you get the mic, you know, you get you get the software that comes with it. So can use it on as many channels as you want oh so you buy the mics and the software is an accompaniment with that as opposed to having to spend yeah. for it separately right yeah that's Another pretty cool stuff you have to do you know you have to do a subscription thing but with the ml2s yeah it just come you know it comes with a software license for those and you know and it's just and it's, it's you know it's it's, ba it's pretty basic you know you've got like you know you're it's just like they're just instrument mics you know and 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 I think there's a there's a couple of a couple of plugins. You know, there's a trimmer um, module and then a revitalizer module. So that which kind of simulates like transformer saturation. So you can have like you know some low end trans transformer saturation or some high frequency transformer saturation. Right. I have that option on uh, one of my Summit audio preamps. I can do that. Yeah. So. It, so, you know, so that's kind of cool. You know, I can kind of fatten things up a little bit, you know, give it some, you know, some transformer thickness if I want to, you know. Um, and so that's that's pretty cool. And, but yeah, and then, you know, and so yeah, I, would, I just go, so I went through the whole mix, you know. I, I, and the, the other main thing with that, I think with that recording was just making sure that the, you know, the overheads were equidistant from the snare drum. You know, if I could go back to a lot of my old recordings, I would do that on everything. Saving so much trouble. <laughs> well, you know, I I, uh, I sort of cheat because I have an old uh, Pacific Pro Audio 
uh, stereo ribbon microphone that I could just oh yeah just just place it. I in fact I recorded an entire drum uh, kit with that, and Brian Cornfield was so impressed with the recording he asked me for the recording so they could put it on their website, and and I I, I was super complimented by that. I was just like, hey Brian, thanks man, I really appreciate that. <laughs> It's just, but it, but it's a very very effective microphone. I only paid three hundred bucks for it. The, the, yeah, the yeah the PPAs. Yeah, the, yeah. I don't think they're around anymore, are they? No, they're gone. They're gone. But but you know, Chris has got a, a, a an old tube mic, and I've got one of those. And I I uh, actually did a podcast where we had th- I had three mics up in the air, and. The, the tube on itself but picked up everybody with better clarity than the Nyman and the groove tube that I had set up. So it's like, well, I'm just going to run one mic on this podcast and it worked. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot to be said, you know, for, well, that, I remember that. This is a trick I learned from, and I use it a lot in live sound, but um, it's an old trick I learned. Yeah, Marcus Miller. Yeah, well, you know, cause he came in and he was teaching my jazz band in college, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, so, you know, he had some good tips. <laughs> and, you know, one of which was, you know, I mean, like mono overheads, you know. And he was he was kind of the king of mono overheads, you know. A lot of those recordings he did, you know, um, they it was all done with one overhead, you know. Cause he's like, no phase cancellation. Yeah. Well, you know, the drums on Superstition with Stevie Wonder were done with a kick drum mic, a snare mic, and one overhead. Three microphones on that drum kit. And probably the right room. (laughs) Though I I know that I I, I seem to recall, I think think there's some Stevie Wonder things where they would would, um, re-trigger the snare. Really? Where they would put a speaker on the snare drum. Have you ever tried that? No, I haven't. Tell me about that. Have you tried it? Yeah. It, it, well, I'm a friend, Kelly, you know, over at, at Ironwood in the Basque. He was the engineer there. Messing around with that. Yeah. You just take a, yeah, you know, you, you take a, you take a speaker, a small monitor or something like that, put it on the snare and, and mic it, mic the snare up. Mic, you know, sometimes, you know, if you want no. to get the snare, right? So, you know, you, you're trying to, you get, I mean, this is, okay, this is an obscure mixing trick that I learned, but yeah, like say, you know, you're, you've got a recording or a mix and, you know, and there's only a top snare mic, right? Uh huh. Okay. And you want to get the bottom, well, then go get, go get the snare drum and mic the bottom of it and then put like an NS10 on top of the snare drum <laughs> and then run the snare tra- and then run the snare signal out to the NS10. <laughs> really? Wow. Retrigger, yeah, retrigger the snare and then just mic, you know, mic the bottom snare so you get all the rattle. Like they would do stuff like that. And then so yeah, I think with the you know, with Joe's stuff, yeah, that was like, you know, making sure the the mic placement was right was big, you know. And you know, so one of the things I'll I'll do is like I'll make sure that I'm equal. I mean, it's one approach to miking drums, but I try to make sure the overheads are equidistant from the snare drum. And then um, I don't know. I, I think with Joe's Hammond, I, I you know I mic both both. Uh, you know, I used three mics on that. Yeah, so did I. 
I, I put two cigar condensers on the rotor and then, uh, then, uh, <laughs> I used that, I used that Pacific Pro Audio 2UBE on the, on the, uh, bottom of the Leslie in it. Yeah. I was extremely happy with that. Extremely happy. Worked great. Yeah. I think, yeah, on, on this recording, I, I, I swapped out. I mean, I virtually, what I ended up doing virtually was I used, uh, the, um, I think I used a, oh, an RE20 um, for the for the lows for the for the, for the bass part because they're really that's really pinchy, and uh, and then a pair of I think U67s for the for the rotors, and so which gives it a lot of you know it gives it a lot of depth. Yeah, a lot of a lot of fatness, and and just pan. I panned those cigar mics so they're hard right and hard left, and you just get a lot of action off the rotor across the mix. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at first when I was when at first when I was mixing it, you know, I was like, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm gonna pan. I'll pan it all the way across the mix, but then it starts to, you know, then you have to think about, okay, well, where is it being placed in the stereo field, and you know, is that does that actually sound natural, right? You know. <laughs> So I, I kind of tried to, you know, kind of place Joe where he would be, you know, on, on the stage, you know, and try to try to put everybody, you know, where they would be on the stage, you know, rather than trying to create something artificial, you know. But yeah, so so but of course that's a little tricky, you know, when you're trying to deal with, um, you know, the, the, you know, with. with you know, with the rotors on, on a Leslie like that. How do you, you know, okay, how do you, how do you get it in the stereo? Yeah, well, the, the album, I mean, not the album, the song I did that on, I've had, had a horn section running and uh, three guitar players. <laughs> Thank God there was just one vocalist. <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, Chris, man, I would love to sit around and talk all day long, but I, I, I can't. That's okay. Yeah. I, I want to say, hey, a big thank you for coming on and, and talking about what it is that you do. This has really been super educational, and it was very exciting to have this conversation. Right on, man. Well, thanks for having me. And we will have some of your material posted on this. It's, I'm really looking forward to hearing this stuff. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll get on that, you know. And yeah, well, it's going to be, take your time because I, I'm sandbagged right now on podcasts pretty heavily. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's going to be a matter. It'll be, it'll be several weeks before I can get this out. Oh, okay. Yeah, no worries then. Yeah, let's see if I can, I'll, I'll go through here and. I mean, yeah, I've got I've got a bunch of mixes I was kind of pulling up anyway. So I'll... yeah, well, send me the send me the ones that you really like, and we'll go from there. It's really looking forward to hearing it. Okay, about how many tunes do you think? Oh, how many you want? I mean, I, I like I said with Carrie, I did five, and her podcast was about an hour and forty five minutes, just like this one. So yeah, yeah, maybe about six. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll do some, maybe do some stuff with Monster Planet. I, you know, there's nothing I should explain with Monster Planet. With that stuff, that's all direct. So there's no mics on that. So it's a of course, yeah, a different different approach. But it works for that band. It's really, sure. You know? Yeah, it's it's electronica. I would expect it to be direct. Yeah, so it it it's actually you know solves a lot of problems. <laughs> it it yeah. sure does. You know, it, <laughs> 
it makes it really easy to do live work. <laughs> um, well, anyway. Yeah. Hey, man, thank you for taking your time today. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah. Be safe. You too. All right. Hey, you want more mac and cheese? Mac and cheese music dot blog on YouTube at Brian at Mac and Cheese, Instagram and Twitter, www.macandcheese.com. And thank you, Anchor.fm, for hosting this podcast. Take it away, Bruno. I think we ought to leave now. Hello, this is the Microsoft Technical Department. You received a letter from Microsoft. Your software license is expired. If you wish to continue using Windows, you must pay now. (laughs) 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 